Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce in the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to the show. I'd like to thank everyone who tuned in last week to our annual Christmas gift giveaway show. Boy, oh boy, we had lots of participants. As a matter of fact, we had more participation in this show than we did for our Christmas gift giveaway on our national show, despite the fact that we are across the nation on nearly 135 stations with that show. So way to go for being great listeners and great entrants and i only wish i had gifts to give away to each and every one of you but as they say there's always next year and as you know there's always our sportsman's warehouse trivia question of the week where you get a chance to win a 25 dollars gift card from america's premier outfitter this week on northwestern outdoors radio we've got three great guests for you one of them is John Kaiser. He is the owner of Tenacity Outdoors, based in Camas, Washington. He has got a great backstory. He's a combat veteran, injured during his third deployment to the Middle East, got the receiving end of a mortar round and ended up with a glass eye. And my, oh my, what a glass eye it is. Like many combat veterans, he found out how healing fishing was as a pursuit and dedicated himself to getting veterans outdoors fishing. Well, now he owns Tenacity Outdoors. It's a guide service and he wants to take everybody fishing. And you can go fishing with him in January for catch and keep sturgeon on the Columbia River. And after that, you can go fishing for Spring Chinook. He'll tell you more about these fisheries and his story in just a couple of minutes. Somebody else we'll talk to today is Tim McNulty. He's got a brand new book out titled Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain. It's a collection of photographs and essays about the Olympic Peninsula with contributions from tribal members who live on the peninsula too. There's some great essays and stories to be found here, and I can't wait for Tim to join us and tell you more about it. You can find Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain right now through Mountaineers Books. Just go to mountaineersbooks.org. Our third guest of the day is Dan Hag with Protect Oregon Recreation. Our friends at the Visit Tillamook Coast Association asked us to do an interview with him because they've had to close down a couple of trails that access the beach in their part of northwest Washington. The reason? A court case heard by the Oregon Court of Appeals that holds the city of Newport liable for injuries sustained by a woman walking on a city-owned trail. This court case can have some far-reaching implications and can result potentially in the closures of recreational trails and beach access throughout Oregon State. Dan will explain more about this and what we can do to try to get this turned around. Throw in a little information about e-bikes, those electric bikes, and where you can and cannot use them. And we've got a pretty darn good show heading your way today. So settle in, pour yourself a cup of coffee or other drink, and let's see what David Sparks has for us this week on Sportsman Spotlight, brought to you by the Ang Information Network of the West. Diverse partnerships protect and enhance a premier trout stream. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. We've come together in the Upper Blackfoot watershed because it's an incredibly special place and it means something to all of us and we want to work to fix it. The Upper Blackfoot River is one of the last strongholds for native Yellowstone cutthroat trout in the West. The watershed is also home to mines that produce 22% of the nation's phosphate, a mineral used in agriculture 
wildfire suppression, and other industries. The Upper Blackfoot Confluence, or UBC, is uniting conservation groups and mining companies to restore the river and ensure its long-term health. Alan Prouty of the J.R. Simplot Company. The Upper Blackfoot Confluence, UBC, is really focused on restoring the aquatic and fisheries habitat of the Upper Blackfoot River. Trout Unlimited, Idaho Conservation League, two other mining companies that were all very much interested in getting something done on the ground that benefited the river, the fish, and uh, the local community that had an interest in those resources. So private industry and conservationists working together. Did you hear that? That's the sound of great careers in agriculture, one of which could be yours. With the number of different job boards that are online these days, it can be overwhelming trying to find out what best suits you as an individual in the ag industry. Hey, sift through the clutter and find your agricultural career on the job board focused on you, agcareers.com. Agcareers.com is the leading online job board for the agricultural, food, natural resources, and biotechnology industries. We are committed to fueling the next generation of talent in agriculture in an effort to feed the world. We understand and support the vast number and variety of careers possible in the industry, from welders and biotechnologists to agricultural teachers and software developers. The time to work in agriculture has never been better with nearly 6,000 career opportunities available on agcareers.com. An opportunity for you is out there. Search for your future today on agcareers.com. Hope you enjoyed Sportsman Spotlight. I'm David Sparks. See you next time. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Then just as we were about to give up and go home, I felt a tug on my rod like none I'd known. It was ominous, like a monster from the deep. I say, this is the one I believe I'll keep. Fish on, fish on. Wind your line, got to make it whirl. You can't catch a king reeling like a little girl. You got to fish on, oh, fish on. You're back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Camas, Washington. That's where we're checking in with John Kaiser. He's a fishing guide. And no, it's not the John Kaiser with the Salt Patrol who guides out of Westport. This is the John Kaiser with an S instead of a Z. And he guides for salmon and sturgeon and more on the Columbia River. John, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So you are the owner of Tenacity Outdoors, and you are getting ready to go sturgeon fishing. What is the sturgeon retention season going to look like this year on the Columbia River? Well, we're on a uh, alternating date schedule, so they can try to get the quota to last longer. So that means starting January 1st above Bonneville, we'll be able to fish every Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. All right. And will you be fishing above the Dallas Dam after that? I know that tends to stay open longer. If I have clients booked already and we meet our quota and they shut down 
the Bonneville pool before I have a chance to get them out. Then I'll give them the option, hey, you know, do you want to just cancel or would you rather, if they're willing, I'll move them to the pool and fish up there or if I still have empty dates and people are wanting to go fish. Now, you're allowed to keep one sturgeon per day. And what is it, two per year? Yes, sir. All right, so you can keep one sturgeon. There's a slot limit, and I'm guessing that it's probably pretty uncommon to catch a keeper for your first sturgeon. You'd probably catch quite a few sturgeon on a typical day before the people in the boat get their keepers, don't they? Yeah, we'll we'll cycle through a lot of undersized fish, which they call shakers, oversized fish, which are always fun, but then you're kind of like, if you're if you're getting into a lot of them, it's like, oh, we're wasting all this time on fish we can't keep. But at the same time, everybody loves the tug of prehistoric fish. <laughs> oh, big prehistoric fish. I have seen them up to 11 feet reeled in on the Columbia River, and I know that they probably get bigger than that. So, folks, real opportunity here. And the place to go to is Facebook. Look for Tenacity Outdoors. And when you find that Facebook page, you can give John a call. So how much are the sturgeon trips? I'm actually doing $150 a seat, which is under the going rate, but I'm still learning that fishery. All right. That's more than fair. What do you like to use for bait? Are you using herring or something else? Mainly, it's going to be herring and sand shrimp. We'll use squid. We'll use anchovies. I've got a lot of uh, shad in the freezer. Sometimes it almost seems to change. Like one bait will be working good for a few days, and then all of a sudden it just stops. So you just rely on one that can... uh, can definitely make or break a day efficient. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about your journey as a guide. You've been guiding for a year and a half now, but you've been fishing a lot longer than that. You grew up fishing with your dad? I grew up fishing in hog lines out of Camas on the Columbia River. I think my dad took me the first time when I was six. Oh, wow. That must have been an experience. And after you graduated from school, you joined the Army, and I understand you had three deployments to the Middle East, two in Iraq. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, peacekeeping mission to Kuwait with the 82nd Airborne, and then two with the Striker Brigade from uh, 2nd Infantry out of Fort Lewis. It was on your third deployment that you became seriously injured. What happened? Enemy mortar round landed in front of the Striker that I was in, and I was standing up, partially exposed out of a hatch on top of the vehicle. And so portions, debris, shrapnel from the uh, vehicle and the mortar round caused significant injury. The uh, I ended up losing an eye out of it. And I understand that you have a glass eye now, and it's very unique. Go ahead and tell our listeners what that eye looks like. The pupil is actually a purple heart metal. That is one of the most unique, if not the most unique, uh, glass eyes or contacts I have ever heard of. So thank you for your service. Obviously, that puts you out of the service. And then you started fishing again. And I understand you, like a lot of other folks, realized how beneficial fishing was as therapy for veterans suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder or just, you know, having gone through combat and trying to get back things in the real world. You got heavily involved in some veterans outreach programs, didn't you? Yeah, I uh, I was volunteering for, I think, about eight years. I volunteered with a Texas-based nonprofit, Veteran Outdoors, as their Pacific Northwest Outreach Coordinator, and was able to get a little over 100 vets a year out at that time at no cost to them and help build a lot of experience, learn new fisheries. Well, I think it's fantastic that you did that. I really do. And uh, as a former veteran myself, thank you for your service and thank you for what you've done since your service. At a certain point, you decided to become a full-time guide. Tell us how you made that decision and how it's gone so far. When I moved from volunteering with Veteran Outdoors to find a more localized nonprofit in Washington with Salmon for Soldiers, 
one of their requirements to take veterans out as often as I was for their own liability concerns was that they wanted me to go get licensed as a guide. Gotcha. And so took advantage of my last little bit of GI Bill I had that hadn't expired yet and went to flagship maritime in Tacoma and got my gun license. Fantastic. So you're about a year and a half into it, and you're going to be guiding for sturgeon this year. I'm assuming you were guiding for salmon last year. Are you taking spring Chinook reservations now? Yes. And early on, are you going to be fishing the mouth of the Willamette River, or are you going to be fishing just the, the lower Columbia? It honestly just depends on conditions. I mean, there's always a little bit of rely on, hey, where are you going, buddy? <laughs> we uh, Guides talk a lot to each other that way. Instead of just putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, you can feel out who's where and what's looking the best. I typically will be launching out of Richfield and either fishing the Columbia or if my clients have Oregon fishing licenses, I always get my guide license for Oregon. That way I can jump into the Multnomah Channel. Right. I enjoy fishing in the Multnomah Channel a lot for springers. I feel like it gives me more time to put people on the water because the season for springers on the Columbia is always smaller than we would want it to be. It does always seem that way, doesn't it? But, you know... As soon as the fish show up, they pull the plug. (laughs) Yes, I know, I know. But is that going to be basically uh, February, March time frame until April? I get going pretty busy. I would say the middle of March, I start going out and really booking. April is when it's definitely going to be the Columbia. Okay. Last but not least, I understand you're going to be in a couple booths at the upcoming O'Loughlin trade shows. And we've got the Sportsman Show in Puyallup, and we've also got the Sportsman Show in Portland. Where are you going to be? Either at the Brad's Killer Fishing Gear booth or the Talon Rods booth. The Talon Rods booth will only be at the Portland show, but Brad will be at Puyallup as well. All right. Well, you can meet up with John Kaiser there. In the meantime, if you want to book a sturgeon trip or a spring Chinook trip, go to his Facebook page at Tenacity Outdoors. Again, veteran-owned, combat veteran-owned guide service here. And his email address is tenacityoutdoors at gmail.com. That's tenacityoutdoors at gmail.com. Book a trip today. Thanks so much, John. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, let's roll out of this segment the same way we came into it with Mark Keller's famous salmon fishing song, Fish On. Wake up to winter in Wallowa County. Grab your camera and don your skis for some Nordic skiing adventure at Salt Creek Summit or Wallowa Lake. Or spend the day on the family-friendly slopes of Fergie Ridge. Or slip into a set of skates and enjoy some time on the ice at our outdoor ice rink. Need to warm up? Then grab a cup of coffee or hot chocolate at one of our fine coffee and confectionery shops. And when evening comes, enjoy some of Wallowa County's fine dining and gaze at the stars before you dream of tomorrow's adventures. Your winter adventure begins at www.wallowacountychamber.com. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Wedding rings? I've had as many as I've got fingers on my hands. I started off with the wedding ring classic, of course. That smooth blade from Indiana. That beaded body. The sharp hook. 
We caught a lot of trout together over the years, but then that patented smile blade wedding ring, well, let's just say it took my fancy, along with the trout and the kokanee. Now I'm going through this new age sort of phase. You might say I'm hooked on the new high UV colored wedding rings and I'm catching more fish than ever. So yeah, I've got a whole bunch of wedding rings. You should get some too. Don't look at the jewelry store though. These wedding ring spinners are from Max Lure and you'll find them at the sporting goods store near you or online at maxlure.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio and to an extended Max Minute, brought to you by Max Lure. Guess who's back? That's right, it's Bob Loomis with Max Lure, and we're going to continue to talk about late fall fishing. The subject this time, lake trout. They don't seem to get a whole lot of attention this time of year, but just like we've been talking about other species, it's a very good time to fish for them right now, isn't it, Bob? Yeah, it's a fantastic time. You know, it's cold you go get in the warm boat go out and troll and you know you can catch some good fish you're going into that big fish season you know a little bit later on but you're you're on the front end of it and you know this is a great time to go fish for lake trout oh it certainly is and you can do it everywhere from lake chelan in washington all the way over to flaming gorge reservoir on the border of utah and wyoming but as for how to catch them this time of year are we trolling for them or jigging for them or both you know, a lot of people like to jig for them later on in the year. And like anything else, forage bases move and fish will stack up a little bit more. You know, on Chelan, we don't get that as much. And one of the things that I like to do is I actually downsize. I run a four-inch double D dodger, which, you know, gives you a lot of action and attraction along with a cha-cha two-inch squitter. And that that is my absolute number one go-to product for any type of lake trout fishing. Another place that has a healthy lake trout population is Flathead Lake. I know a lot of folks do like to jig for them this time of year. What would you recommend folks use from Max Lure Company for that? Well, I just had a guy call in and order 200 glow hooks just for the lake trout tournament that they have, which is like a couple month long type tournament. And that's all they use is uh, glow hooks. They buy the larger long shank bronze glow hooks that that were one of the original product lines in Max Lure and tip it with a little bit of bait. And they absolutely love that. That is their go-to. And this particular guy and his buddy have won this tournament, I think, once or twice and taken second. So they kind of know what they're doing. (laughs) There you go. So your choice, troll them up or jig them up, but get out there. It's a great time to catch some big Mackinac. That's the sound you hear when a fish hits the new sonic bait fish from Max Lure Company. This metal lure can be cast, trolled, or jigged, and will catch just about anything that swims in the sea, the river, or the lake. The sonic bait fish has a unique vibration and flutter that can be rigged in seven different ways. With all sorts of eye-catching colors and weights available, you'll be reaching for the sonic bait fish as your go-to lure. It's the sonic bait fish. And that's another fish on, only from Max Lure. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter. 
with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you. With not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio, I'm John Cruz. We've got Tim McNulty on the line. He is an award-winning poet, essayist, and nature writer who lives in Squim, Washington. And he's written 10 books about poetry, 12 books about natural history, uh, loves to write about the Olympic Peninsula in particular. And he's got a brand new book out on that subject, Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain, that's available in bookstores and through mountaineerbooks.org. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you. So let's talk about uh, your latest book. Well, actually, let's back up. Before we talk about the book, let's talk about you and your love for the Olympic Peninsula. Again, you've written a dozen books about natural history, most of them about the peninsula. Yeah, some of those were, you know, uh, about other national parks, other wilderness areas, rivers, forests, mountains. But, uh, yeah, a fair amount about the peninsula. I first moved here, came here as a young man out of college all the way back in 1972. And I was traveling around the West. I, I wanted to be in, you know, find a place that was beautiful and wild and ex- inspiring. And, and the, the peninsula jumped out and caught me. Settled in here and been here ever since. So your latest book, Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain, is also about the Olympic Peninsula, but it incorporates a Native American perspective, and there's certainly quite a few tribes that are out on the peninsula, too. Uh, Yeah, there's about eight tribal nations scattered around the peninsula, including the the Kitsap Peninsula. Each one unique, each one its own government, and they're a big part of life and culture here on the peninsula. And this is a unique book. In terms of you are not the sole author, you actually have lots of contributions from different writers from different tribes. Is that right? That's right, yeah. I wrote the kind of the central essay of the books. It's a large format book with over 150 color photographs. And I wrote the kind of the, the, the essay that tells the story of the natural history of the Olympic Peninsula, as well as some of the conservation history, a bit of the threat that global warming poses to the natural systems here on the Olympic Peninsula and a a chapter on a lot of the restoration work that's being undertaken to try to bring back some threatened salmon, some other species that are a little bit in trouble here on the peninsula and trying to get the place a little bit more natural, a little bit more functioning well in the face of global warming. I know one of the biggest events that has happened in terms of conservation out on the Olympic Peninsula in recent years has been the breaching of the dam on the, I believe it's the lower Elwha River. Yeah, the Elwha River, two dams on the, on the Elwha River were finally taken out. The last little bits were cleaned up around uh, 2014, so it's been about 10 years now since the first of the two dams was breached. And already salmon have come back swimming past the lower dam side and past the upper dam side and are being found, and closely monitored, of course, in the upper river in the Upper Elwha in Olympic National Park. Some 70 miles of pristine salmon spawning habitat. This is a wild river with old growth forest. We're opened back 
back up to salmon. So it was a, a huge event, a huge ecological event, a, a very big cultural event for the Oahuacalum people who live at the river mouth, and, and just a major restoration effort on the part of the National Park Service. I know that steelhead, especially wild steelhead, have been struggling mightily on the rivers of the Olympic Peninsula. And I know steelhead and the Quinault tribe have a strong tie. Is this something that's addressed in the book? That's right, yeah. There's a, yeah, a very, very powerful essay by uh, Gary Morishima, who's one of the resource managers down at the Quinaults, that talks about Quinault fisheries. And um, steelhead are found in rivers throughout the Olympic Peninsula. They are the some of the heroes of the Elwha restoration because they have swum farthest up the valley and spawned way, way back up into the headwaters of the Elwha River. But you're also right. They're, they're federally listed as a threatened species. They're, they're in trouble on rivers around the peninsula. In fact, the Olympic National Park, Olympic National Park has just closed a couple of the West End rivers to the winter steelhead sport fishing season to try to ensure that more fish will get up and, and spawn in the rivers in, in order to, you know, try to help the stocks recover. What are some of the other stories or essays that speak to you in this book? Well, I go back to some of the early geologic formation of the peninsula. It's a pretty fresh new mountain range scraped off the floor of the ocean, plastered onto the edge of the continent, rising up into this continual stream of weather coming off the Pacific, and so that uh, the west side of the peninsula is drenched with rain, 160, 180 inches of rain in the whole valley, some of the west side valleys, 240 inches of precip on Mount Olympus, whereas over on the east side, where I live in the rain shadow of the Squim, about 14 inches, and so this incredible diversity of habitats, forest types, different types of prairies, riparian areas along the rivers, this vast diversity of, of, of species and habitats in one small area is one of the major stories of the book. I explore that a fair amount. I'd imagine another major story in the book is just the connection that the tribes have to the land and to the forests and to the wildlife there. And I'm, I'm certain that's probably expressed in several of the essays and stories that you have. Oh, yeah, it certainly is. And, and of course, no one tells that story better than the Native American writers in the book. And human presence on the, on the peninsula, going by the archaeological record, goes back close to 13,000 years, not far from where I live in Squim. Back in the 70s, a local resident was uh, digging a pond in a wet spot and uncovered a couple of mastodon tusks. As archaeologists uh, started exploring that site, they found that the uh, one of the mastodon rib bones had a projectile point, a, a spear point embedded in it. And, you know, that's been since dated at close to 13,000 years ago. And other artifacts showed that that mastodon was possibly hunted, but certainly scavenged by people here while, you know, Pleistocene ice was still melting on the north side of the Olympic Peninsula. So it's an old story, and it's, it's a story that I think gives me and a lot of other people hope that human society, human culture found ways to thrive here sustainably without destroying the place for so long that we should be able to rally and make sure that we can do that again in the near future in spite what? of the threats posed by excessive resource use and of course global warming. One last question that would be the photographs. Again it's 208 page book, retails for $32.95 but it has 150 color photos. Did you take all the photos? Oh my gosh no, no. 30 <laughs> uh, professional photographers, over 30% professional photographers 
photographers contributed photographs, and the publisher of Braided Rivers uh, Conservation Imprint of, of the Mountaineers books did a uh, wonderful job of, of, uh, of curating the photographs, you know, arranging them throughout the book. I worked with them to write hopefully pretty informed captions throughout, and so the photographs alone uh, tell a story. The essays, I think, deepen that story and bring people uh, closer into experience with the place. Well, it sounds like a fabulous Christmas gift for anybody who loves nature, especially as it pertains to the beautiful Olympic Peninsula in northwest Washington. If you want to get a copy, you can go to mountaineersbooks.org or just look for it in a local bookstore in the Pacific Northwest. Good chance you're going to find it there. Tim, congratulations on the book, Salmon, Cedar, Rock and Rain. And folks, again, check it out. It's by Tim McNulty, and it's available right now. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you so much. If your favorite season is deer, if your favorite salad is meat salad, if your favorite gifts come wrapped in fur or scales, if you're dreaming of a white and camo Christmas, then you'd fit right in at Sportsman's Warehouse. And lucky for you, Sportsman's is offering amazing deals all season long. So visit your local store or go online to sportsmans.com and gear up for an unforgettable holiday. Wintertime is showtime in the Pacific Northwest, and we've got a great lineup of shows for you from O'Loughlin Trade Shows. Things kick off in Portland at the Expo Center, January 10th through the 14th. That's where the Portland Boat Show is taking place. There'll be all sorts of boats on sale to include the largest display of aluminum boats you're going to find perhaps in the entire nation in one place. Right after that, it's the Tacoma RV Show at the Tacoma Dome, January 18th through the 21st. Dozens of dealers will have RVs available for you, and BECU will be there to help you finance the RV of your dreams. It's the Portland Boat Show and the Tacoma RV Show. Find out more at otshows.com. Public lands and waters are integral to our outdoor heritage. Become a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and stand up for our public lands and waters. Visit backcountryhunters.org today. Back in with Northwestern Outdoors Radio, I'm John Cruz. Our next stop is Tillamook, specifically the Tillamook Coast Visitors Association. We are catching up with Dan Haig about a court decision which is really impacting public recreation throughout the state of Oregon. Dan, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. Let's talk about a court case. The Oregon Court of Appeals issued an opinion on a case, Fields versus the City of Newport. What was this case all about? In a nutshell, it effectively ended a recreational immunity and impacted the accessibility and affordability of recreation and fitness for people all over Oregon. Kind of the, the nuts and bolts of the lawsuit started by an individual named Nicole Fields, who was walking early 2019 with some people and their dog on Agate Beach, which is in the city of Newport. She ended up leaving the beach using um, the city of Newport's 
new or improved Ocean to Bay Trail. And in the process, she fell down. She slipped and fell on a, a wet section of the footbridge and broke her leg. And then in subsequent months, she filed a lawsuit against Newport in 2020, I believe. And then it was claimed on her part it was negligent maintaining the bridge and the pathway and not posting warning signs for people who are using it. So recreational immunity usually stop those kinds of lawsuits kind of at the front door because they provided a landowner was not liable for any kind of injury incurred when people were uh, using the land for recreational purposes, especially when it was no charge. And it provided a long time protection for owners of recreational land. And, and Fields kind of argued to her lawyer that she was not recreating at the time, which, you know, was kind of picking apart what happened. And long and short of it is the courts ended up siding with her on that one. Wow. Well, Miss Fields, thanks for ruining things for everybody. So let's talk about what cities and counties have done in response to this. Can't they just put up a sign saying you're on a trail, life happens, be careful? Yeah, that's, you know, there's a lot of different uh, ideas going back and forth about this. I mean, the Kind of what happened in the aftermath of the Fields versus City of Newport is they took it to uh, the Court of Appeals decision was taken before the Oregon Supreme Court, and the Oregon Supreme Court declined to review the decision. I think this was in the last few months. So that kind of put everybody on notice that, you know, there, there could be some changes coming when it comes to recreating on trails and uh, beach access points and things like that. Many of the cities and counties who are throughout the state of Oregon are insured by CIS Oregon, which is the main provider of casualty and property insurance for those entities. And, you know, since that court decision, uh, they've been telling Oregon cities and counties to close access trails. So there hasn't been a lot of widespread closures yet. Sad to say for us that the first two closures that were directly related to this have happened in the last week out in Tumult County. They're the first ones in the state to kind of close due to this. Two trails in Oceanside, Oregon, the Short Beach Trail and the Tire Trail, which are kind of really both popular, especially with locals. And the county did put up signs that said that you, you know, that you were speaking of, you know, use at your own risk or closed, actually closed, uh, dangerous, do not use. To be fair, you know, backing up a little bit, both those trails had some liability concerns because they were in need of some serious repairs. So I think the move was made kind of a two-pronged move, you know, because with this recreational immunity thing in mind, but also it's a good time of year with bad weather and low usage. And they thought, well, let's just close it up and, and see what happens in the next coming months. So those are the first two that have closed in the state that I am aware of. So we hold that distinction. But, you know, I don't know. It's in my mind, when I'm recreating, I do assume a certain amount of personal responsibility and, and a, a kind of an unspoken agreement with, you know, the trail I'm using or the beach I'm using that, you know, if I fall, it's probably due to something that, you know, is out of everybody else's control, right? This has impacted a couple of trails in Tillamook County, but, I mean, like you're alluding to, this could impact trails all over the state of Oregon. Oh, yeah. Everything from trails accessing the beach to the Pacific Press Trail. I mean, this is kind of an insane ruling from the Court of Appeals. I'm guessing other entities are going to be closing trails because of this lawsuit? I don't know. There's nothing imminent in our county right now. We're kind of crossing our fingers and holding the line, hoping that, you know, nothing happens. I know that some city councils are weighing some options and discussing this for sure and talking to, uh, you know, getting some legal advice and where they should go, but there's nothing on the horizon close. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it does raise the question of what's the next domino to fall. Uh, you know, we don't want to, obviously, we don't want to sound like we're overreacting, but um, as you said, that ruling does have some definite ripple effects, especially now with two trails closed and, you know, potentially uh, the insurance agencies telling cities and counties that they better think about this seriously. 
Wow. Again, Miss Fields, way to go. Don't need to beat up on you, but your lawsuit is really impacting thousands and thousands of people who want to recreate in the state of Oregon by forcing these closures of these trails. This is just insane. So what can be done to turn this around? Well, you know, there are a lot of, uh, I know there's a lot of out there advocacy groups from around Oregon who are tackling this. I know there are efforts underway with, you know, some lawmakers in the state to fix this issue and they're all partnering together to, I don't have any specifics, but I know, you know, they're partnering together to tackle this and, you know, try and either find a fix or strengthen recreational beauty in some way. The best way, you know, your best course of action right now, we encourage everyone to do this, is contact your local representative or legislator, you know, and, and tell them, you know, from my point of view, and this is speaking outside of my profession, but I've lived in Oregon for 30 years. And, you know, getting outside is kind of in everybody's DNA out in Oregon, right? I mean, right. you've got hiking, you've got beaches, you've got skiing and hunting and fishing. And it's just, you know, never-ending list of things we can do outdoors. And I don't think it's a knee-jerk reaction to say that this potentially could affect all of that if it's not dealt with in some way. So, you know, we encourage everyone to contact their local representatives and tell them, exactly, you know, how, what the outdoors means to you in Oregon and that you support strengthening or restoring recreational immunity as it was. I understand there's also a petition that's circulating, the Protect Oregon Recreation Petition. How can folks sign that and hopefully get it in front of the legislature or the voters next election? Right. It is an online petition at protectoregonrecreation.org. They are updating the petition right now to reflect the language that is going on with recreational immunity. That website was originally created to address a similar issue with the ski industry. So the advocacy groups that are working to restore recreational immunity now will be taking over that website, updating the petition, and they should have that ready in the next week or so. So just kind of check in with protectoregonrecreation.org and we see that it's up to recreational immunity, then we encourage you to click on that petition and sign it. And that should be up in the next, uh, like I said, next week or two. But in the meantime, you know, like I said, I don't mean to keep repeating, but uh, contact your, your representatives and tell them how much you love Oregon Outdoors. Very glad you are shining a light on this issue. Again, the the website, protectoregonrecreation.org. That's protectoregonrecreation.org. And if you are a listener in Oregon, please contact your local state representative, state senator, and let them know that we need to have some immunity when it comes to recreation on our trails and recreating outdoors in Oregon. Otherwise, it could end for a whole lot of us, and that is no good. Website again, protectoregonrecreation.org. Dan, thanks for shining a light on this today on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Thank you for inviting me on. In other news, e-bikes, electric bikes are becoming all the rage, and for good reason. You can get a lot farther into the forest than you could before on a regular bicycle. We're talking about round trips of 35 to 50 miles. That's a long ways back there, and you can do so with a minimum of effort. However, there's a lot of confusion about where they can be used on trails and roads, and that's why the Idaho Department of Fish and Game has written an article that kind of clarifies this issue. Because state conservation officers have noticed a trend of hunters in particular running afoul of motor vehicle use restrictions on public lands by using e-bikes and incorrectly assuming motorized vehicle restrictions do not apply to them. As a matter of fact, e-bikes are motorized vehicles in Idaho and also 
on some federal lands. And it's the hunter's responsibility, or in other cases, any outdoor enthusiast's responsibility, to know and abide by vehicle use restrictions. According to Matt O'Connell, the Southwest Regional Conservation Officer, it's generally a safe assumption that the use of e-bikes is limited to motorized roads and trails regardless of where you're hunting. On lands managed by the U.S. Forest Service, e-bikes are only allowed on National Forest System roads and trails that are designed for motorized vehicle use or trails specifically designated as open to e-bikes. On lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management, e-bikes are currently allowed on all roads and trails open to OHV use and in all areas designated as OHV open. These are roads open to ATVs or Jeeps or dirt bikes. There's also some trails specifically designated on BLM lands as open to e-bikes as well. Getting back to state lands in Idaho, e-bikes are not allowed on any road trailer area that is closed to motorized travel, including wildlife management areas or wildlife habitat areas. One other thing to consider is Idaho Fishing Game's motorized hunting rule, which is specific to hunting big game animals, including moose, bighorn sheep, and mountain goat, in designated units between August 30th and December 31st. The rule restricts the use of motorized vehicles by hunters as an aid to hunting big game animals in certain areas. In other words, that e-bike of yours that you're using to get way back there to get after these animals might not be allowed. The bottom line is, no matter what state you're in, know before you go and avoid a ticket for using an e-bike in the wrong place. Stick around. We've got your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week coming up right after this short break. Wintertime is showtime in the Pacific Northwest, and we've got a great lineup of shows for you from O'Loughlin Trade Shows. Things kick off in Portland at the Expo Center, January 10th through the 14th. That's where the Portland Boat Show is taking place. There'll be all sorts of boats on sale to include the largest display of aluminum boats you're going to find perhaps in the entire nation in one place. Right after that, it's the Tacoma RV Show at the Tacoma Dome, January 18th through the 21st. Dozens of dealers will have RVs available for you, and BECU will be there to help you finance the RV of your dreams. It's the Portland Boat Show and the Tacoma RV Show. Find out more at otshows.com. If your favorite season is deer, if your favorite salad is meat salad, if your favorite gifts come wrapped in fur or scales, if you're dreaming of a white and camo Christmas, then you'd fit right in at Sportsman's Warehouse. And lucky for you, Sportsman's is offering amazing deals all season long. So visit your local store or go online to sportsmans.com and gear up for an unforgettable holiday. Are you ready for some real adventure? Then wake up to winter in Wallawa County. Grab your camera, put on your snowshoes, and take a professionally guided hike into the quiet solitude and breathtakingly rugged beauty of the Eagle Cap Wilderness. Or sleep under the stars and test your mettle with some winter camping and ice fishing for kokanee and trout at Wallawa Lake. Or bring your snowmobile to Salt Creek Summit and explore Wallawa County on 150 miles of Northeast Oregon's best trails. Your outdoor winter adventure begins at www.wallawacountychambers.com.
Before we go today, we've got time for one last shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with your host, John Cruz. I'm glad you're back. If you haven't finished your shopping yet, I've got a suggestion about where to go, especially if you have an outdoors enthusiast in your life. That would be your local Sportsman's Warehouse store. They've got some Christmas deals for you, and with over 130 locations, many of them right here in the western United States and Pacific Northwest, you're going to find one near you. So head on down to your Sportsman's Warehouse store today and get some great gifts for the outdoors enthusiast in your life for Christmas. And now it's time for your Sportsman's Warehouse Trivia Question of the Week. And yes, it is Christmas-related. Now, everyone knows that Santa has a bunch of reindeer. One of them is named Donner. The other one is named Blitzen. And believe it or not, there are a couple of rivers here in the greater Northwest named the Donner and Blitzen Rivers, actually named after some Germans discovered them. Here's your question. What state are these rivers, the Donner River and the Blitzen River, found in? If you know the answer, you know what to do. Just go to our website at northwesternoutdoors.com. Go to the Contact Us page and let us know there, or just shoot me an email directly at john, J-O-H-N, at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let me know what state you'll find the Donner and Blitzen Rivers in. One lucky person who guesses right wins that $25 gift card we give away every week from Sportsman's Warehouse. On that note, it's time to go. You're probably going to get a best of edition next week, it being the Christmas weekend and all. So let me take this opportunity now to wish you and yours a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> 